We are still going to be continuing this series of sermons for a while, obviously, because even though 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John aren't very long and don't take up much space, uh, we've been in it uh, four weeks now, and we're still in the second chapter of 1st John. So we're moving along at a snail's pace, but we are getting there. But we're looking at this idea of where can we find hope in this world that is so shaken, and uh, today's message is going to be titled, or is titled, just simply, If We Keep His Commands. Words straight out of the Scripture. One of the things that I love about the writings of John the Apostle, and I do believe, and I've said this already, I believe that the Gospel, the three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as Revelation, I believe they were all written by the Apostle John. And in fact, the letters probably written when he was close to the age between 90 and 100 years of age. Writing back to us with the wisdom of somebody that has been involved directly as a follower of Jesus and then as a part of of the expansion of the church. uh, Writing in in a very fatherly way to us. But wanting to give us some hope. And John is very intentional in doing that. Uh, In his gospel, the gospel of John. As he's closing that gospel, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John's very clear as to why he included the things he included. As well as his purpose for writing. Listen to those verses. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. You hear what John's saying? There's a whole lot of other things Jesus did that I could have written about. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. I've already shared with you how... The first letter of John, 1 John, is also written with clear intentions. Three times, John gives us a very clear purpose clause. We or I are writing to you, chapter 1, verse 4, so that our joy may be complete. Chapter 2, verse 1, so that you may not sin. We're writing to you so that you may not sin. And in chapter 5, Verse 13, he wants to make sure that we know that an important part of his purpose for writing is he says, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. Now notice the similarity of this phrase with what he said at the close of his gospel for the purpose. Where he wrote that that by believing you may have life in his name. Life. Eternal life. Abundant life in the here and now. And last Sunday, I shared with you that John is also very clear about what should be the content that we are proclaiming. Not a philosophical or theological statement, but something very practical, down to earth. A positive statement. That God is light. And then the double negative. And there's no darkness in Him at all. Light. Which illuminates. 
You may not, you may, but you may not be familiar. You probably at least have heard uh, the name C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is the author of the Chronicles of Narnia series. Excellent uh, series of books. In fact, I think they did it by accident. I don't think they realized the theologian that C.S. Lewis was and what he had included because the Chronicles of Narnia were included in the acceptable read at the public school where I taught. And so guess what I used for one of my assigned books? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now let me tell you real quickly what it, it gained me. A trip to the principal's office. But that's okay because I was in the clear. All of the students that were questioned said exactly what I said. And so the principal said, well, obviously this is the truth. But one of the little girls, when we were going through that book, when she got to the part where Aslan the lion dies so that the little boy can live, if you've read it, fabulous. This girl says, Mr. Latimer, that sounds a lot like the story of Jesus dying on the cross so that we can live. And so I was able to answer her question. I got called to the office because one of the parents said I was preaching to their kids. And uh, the kids said, no, the, the girl was the one that brought it up and raised the question. And in Kentucky, that clears the teacher of anything if it's a student-raised question. Uh, but anyway... C.S. Lewis was an avowed atheist. In fact, he went to Oxford to study science, basically to, to prove, to show, to verify that all of that stuff was nonsense. And while he was attending Oxford as a student, he actually was converted. Uh, he became a, create, a believer in a creator first, And then later he became uh, a Christian, a believer in the story of Jesus Christ. And when he was asked about it, Lewis stated very simply that it made more sense than atheism. And then he explained his belief this way. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I love that statement. That by Christianity, we're able to see everything else clearly. Just like what the sun does for us. Now last Sunday, our focus was on three false claims that were presented by the opponents of John, the opponents of the church, yes, even the opponents of Christianity in that day. False claims that are very much present in our day as well. And they're all introduced by John with the hypothetical, if we say. If we say that we have a relationship, the first claim, to maintain, to even argue that somehow you can know God, you can have a relationship with God without any concern for being righteous, That is, carrying the name without practicing the truth. Claiming superior wisdom while walking in the darkness. If you claim that, 
you have a relationship without righteousness, without obedience, you're lying. The truth isn't in you. The second false claim I shared with you was to believe that somehow we're spared of having to deal with the negative effects of sin. That we have no sin. We're not sinners by nature. And yet I pointed to Romans 7 where the Apostle Paul could clearly say that there was another law. Another law. Another that is vastly different than the other one. Other than the law of God. Whereby we... He often found himself doing what he knew he shouldn't be doing and not doing what he knew he should be doing. And he said the reason that's happening is because of the law of sin. In fact, he concludes chapter 7 by saying, So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. It's that recognition That there is that principle of sin that keeps bombarding us. And then the third false or bogus claim, which is indicated uh, by the words, if we say we have not sinned. And this, this is really, as I shared with you, the most blatant. The other had to do with there's no nature of sin that affects us. We're all free to do whatever we want. This one says, if we claim that we're not making mistakes, that we're not sinning, then John is clear that the outbreak of sin in our behavior is just as real as the origin of of sin in our nature and the consequences that those have of preventing us from having a relationship with God. To say that we haven't sinned is neither to tell a deliberate lie nor to be deluded, but actually to accuse God of lying. You say, well, how can you say that? Well, think about it. What do the Scriptures say? One that I quoted when I was very young in church camp because it was easy to remember and it was short. Uh, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Okay, you get your points. Or how about, there is none righteous, no, not one. We all are sinners. We all make mistakes every day. And in our text for today, John shifts the focus just a bit in order to help us to know how we can determine some tests that we can use to determine if we're walking in the light or walking in the darkness. And we'll look at the first two of what I believe to be very valid tests. And just like the false claims, the tests themselves have a catchphrase. It's a part of John's intentional style of writing. Both of the tests that we'll look at today contain the phrase, whoever says. And the three tests are the moral, whether or not we're keeping the commands, the social, whether or not we're filled with brotherly love, and then the doctrinal, which has to do with the belief that we have. How true is it? So with that little bit of an introduction, Let's get into God's text, God's Word. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His Word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. 
By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. And does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. Well, the first test, did you see it? Verses 3 to 6 is what we can refer to as the moral test. And verse 4 simply says, Whoever says, I know him. Whoever says, I know Him, but doesn't keep His commandments. Now, most of us don't like tests. Tests conjure up some bad images in our minds. But you know, there are some tests that are actually fun. And some tests are absolutely vital. I'm at that age where every few years, my doctor wants me to go have a particular test. And the test is nowhere as bad as the stuff I have to drink the night before I go have that test. But I go through it. Why? It's not because it's fun. That's not one of the fun tests. But because it's vital. It's important. And this first test from John is that kind of a test. John is going to give us an opportunity to test ourselves as to whether or not we're truly Christians. And it's a test of righteousness. The point that John's making is that the person who truly knows God will increasingly lead a righteous life. For God is righteous. Those of you that have been to my office notice that right away that I have plants. I love plants. When my wife has a plant that's not doing well, she brings it to my office, the hospital. It gets better. It goes back home. Uh, Kay has brought a plant over to my office. It got better. It's back in her office. Guess what? If any of those plants in my office are not growing, I know that they're dying. It doesn't even matter if they're not getting worse. If they're staying the same or not getting better, they're dying. And that same principle applies to us as Christians. John states the case with certainty. He doesn't say we hope. He doesn't say we think. He doesn't say we wish. He says we know. By this we know that we have come to know Him. He uses the same word twice in this for one sentence. 
And the first one is something that is in a tense uh, that means to continually perceive something by experience. And that was certainly the case for John from the time he was really young. All of those years. By the time he's writing this, 65 to 70 years since he had been with Jesus. Of knowing by experience. But the next time he uses the word, he's using it in a tense that carries the meaning of having seen something at one point in time that has a continued effect. We know from experience over time that what we experienced back there, verses 1 to 4, has affected us eternally. And notice what's the key indicator. It has to do with where and how we're spending the precious moments of our lives. Where we abide. And that language in biblical times had to do with the way we walked, where we abided, had to do with our behavior. Are we walking in the manner of life? Is the way that you live 24-7, 365... Is that walking that you do in the same way in which He walked? What would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? And you know what? That's a principle of Scripture. Those whose faith is genuine will obey the truth. Listen to the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also... Be holy in all your conduct. Look at all that Peter packed into those three verses. Preparing our minds. Reading, studying God's Word. Secondly, being intentional ourselves. Being focused and sober-minded. And then thirdly, being transformed. Being set apart. That one has stuff in it, so I'll describe this one. Basically, what is this? We call it an offering plate, right? Because we have set it apart for the purpose of collecting offerings. But isn't it basically just a silver bowl? And if it didn't have the felt in the bottom of it, as a bowl, couldn't we use it for putting soup in it or something? Now, we don't use it that way because we have set it apart for the purpose of collecting offerings for God. And that word, set apart, is the word holy. It isn't a word meaning sit around, stare at your navel, and hum. And I don't have anything against meditation. I just think we need to meditate on things other than our belly button. But we as Christians are to be set apart. We're to be different. The old King James Version. He says, you are a holy people, a holy nation. I love the next line in the King James. A 
peculiar people. I'm pretty peculiar. Uh, but we're to be different. And then in verses 7 to 11 of our text, we're given the second test. Something that we need to look at in terms of self-examination and reflection. It's what, for a lack of a better term, is called the social test. And, and once again, we see John's use of the key phrase. It actually comes in verse 9, after John has already given us some foundational information. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Now I said it comes later because there's actually a a short transitional section in verses 7 and 8. As John now applies to the professing Christians his second test, as he's about to write uh, the necessity of brotherly love, he very appropriately addresses them as beloved. The first of six times in just this short little book, five chapters, six times, he refers to them as beloved. That relationship that he had, the affection that he had regarding his readers. And he's been writing about the Christian obligation to keep God's commandments already in verses 3 and 4. Now he singles out one of them, which he says in verse 7 is old, and yet in verse 8 he says it's new. I said, now wait a minute, John. Is it old or is it new? Well, I think it's kind of like buying a mint condition 57 Chevy. It's old, but if it's in mint condition, it's new and it's certainly new to us. And we'd love to have it, wouldn't we, Rich? (laughs) Old and yet new. What in the world does he mean? I mean, he says, this is something that we've known about. And yet, did you notice that he doesn't explicitly reveal what the nature of the commandment is? You didn't hear me say, as we were reading the text, that new and old commandment is the commandment to love one another in a brotherly way. He never explicitly says that. But... Since that's the single object of verses 9 to 11, and since the new commandment pointed to in the gospel by none other than Jesus, didn't Jesus say, I have a new commandment to give to you? As I have loved you, so must you love one another. John 13, 34. I think it's pretty obvious. I believe the purpose of John here is to point us to this whole commandment of brotherly love. John's told them they have to walk as Jesus walked, which certainly was a walk of love. And brotherly love was part of the original message which had come to them. And John was not now inventing it. It wasn't something new. He said it was from the beginning. And again, The key indicator? Love. 
The key indicator as to whether or not we're walking in the light or stumbling around in darkness is love. Not that the idea of brotherly love is general, in general was new. But in the life and teaching of Jesus, it was new in several ways. Given a richer and deeper meaning. John Stott, in a book that he has commentary on the epistles of John, he says that there's at least three ways in which that old command became new with Jesus. First of all, he says that he gave it a new emphasis. That new command when Jesus gave it is actually the combination of Deuteronomy 6.5, the great Shema, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And Leviticus 19.18 that said, you're to love your neighbors. And Jesus brought those two together. And he said, this is what all of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and all of the prophets, this is what it's all about. A new emphasis. Secondly, it has to do with the, the fact that it was new in quality. Disciples were not to love others just because they loved them. But they were to love others in the same measure that Christ had loved them. That love that is with selfless self-sacrifice. Even up to death. And thirdly, what about the extent? The emphasis, the quality, and the extent. And the extent he gave to us in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you know that those two words used together was an oxymoron for Jews? You never said good and Samaritan at the same time. They didn't view the Samaritans as good for anything. They were just a bunch of half-breeds. Heathens. They didn't even worship around Jerusalem. They claimed Yahweh is their God, but, but they had their own mount up there where they worshipped. And when Jesus is defining what it means to be a neighbor, He says, well, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about a good Samaritan. And he tells the story. And in the story are priests and Levites, all these religious people who come along and they see this man who's beaten and robbed and left there and they pass by on the other side. And then a Samaritan comes, sees the man, touches the man, cares for the man, takes the man to a place where he can get further care, says, I'll flip the bill for this man when I come back. And when Jesus asks that young Jewish religious leader, in the story that I told, who was the one who was really a neighbor? Who was the one that was really good? This is sad. But the young man couldn't even say the Samaritan. He hated him so much. He said, well, I guess the one that gave some help and aid. 
And that's the story Jesus uses to talk about the extent of the love that we're supposed to have. Love is for anyone who needs our compassion, who needs our help, irrespective of race, irrespective of rank. And it even includes our enemy. And so we get to verses 10 to 11 and we find a summary, a concluding statement of the general principle. And the contrast is stark. The contrast is absolute. Love and hatred are set in opposition to each other with no alternative. Just as we are said to be either light or darkness, no twilight. And the first part of the contrast is simple. But what follows shows that our love and hatred not only reveal whether we are in darkness uh, or in, in, in light, but they actually show that the darkness of itself, if that's what we're a part of, the darkness itself contributes to our nature. And so John is able to say that if you are in fact a loving Christian who abides in the light, then there's nothing to make you stumble. Now here's the point. The light shines on our path. I, I love, we, we, on Sunday evenings when we have the youth here, we do the pledges, the pledge to the American flag, the Christian flag, and to the Bible. I pledge my allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Its words will I hide in my heart that I might not sin against God. The light shines on our path so that we can see clearly, so that we can walk properly. And if we love people, it's really not hard to see how to avoid sinning against them. The person with hatred in his heart, they're in darkness. And they walk around in darkness. And John says they don't even know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. I'm going to be honest with you. It's been really hard for me at times in my life to feel sympathy for people who get themselves involved in situations that were that are obviously and clearly things that are harmful and detrimental. I struggle with that. I'm sure, Liz, you've seen the same thing, but years ago I pulled into University Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky to go check up on an accident victim from a motor vehicle accident and there was somebody standing outside in their hospital gown with their IV hooked up to them because the university hospital had already decided way back then that you couldn't smoke inside the building. So here they were outside with their hospital gown on with an IV so that they could smoke. Hard for me to conjure up a lot of sympathy. really is. And you know what? The problem with that is is that if we're not careful, we start feeling ill will toward them. 
And then the outcome of that is hatred which distorts our perception. You see, we don't first misjudge people and then begin to hate them as a result. Our view of them is already, uh, this is my new word. I'm going to start using it more frequently. Our view of them is already jaundiced by our, by our hatred. It's a love. It's in love where we see straight, where we think clearly. It's love that makes us have a balance in our outlook and our judgments and our conduct. So, in conclusion, wrapping it up, time for reflection and application. Test one. Are you obeying everything commandment, commanded? We'll say, oh gosh, John say nobody's perfect, no. John says nobody's perfect. He says, if you say you haven't sinned, you're a liar, and the truth isn't in you. But what is your goal? What is your intent? Is your intent to obey all of the commandments? Or are you intentionally saying, well, I know the Bible says that, but but that's old-fashioned. That doesn't apply anymore. What were we commissioned to do by Jesus? Matthew 28, 19-20. Go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the next phrase, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. It's a part of our commission. Are we following our commission? How are we doing with test one? And test two, do you show love? Brotherly love. Love to your neighbor. Love to the marginalized and neglected. Your enemies. Even to those that are persecuting you. I'm not going to tell you who. That's not important. But I know of a young woman who when she saw blankets on sale bought up a whole bunch of them because they were dirt cheap and said you know the next time I'm in Chicago I'm going to take these with me in a bag and just hand them out to the homeless people putting our love into action test one Are we obedient? Test two, are we loving? Let's pray.